Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Peggy Lee. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the director of chapters here at ACS, and I'm your host for today's episode. We're recording this episode on Thursday, May 5th, just a few days after Politico released a leaked draft opinion for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which would overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey and eliminate a fundamental constitutional right and nearly 50-year precedent. Like many of you, I'm angry, I'm scared, and I'm pained by all the suffering that this will cause. This is extremely personal to so many of us and should be devastating to all of us. Whether you know it or not, we all know and love someone who has had an abortion or who may need an abortion in their lifetime. I know that many of you know about the current attacks against reproductive freedom, not only at the Supreme Court, but also by state legislatures around the country. The attacks against bodily autonomy have been relentless. If you haven't already, I encourage you to check out past reproductive rights episodes of Broken Law, episode 14, 27, and 42. You can check out those episodes wherever you're listening to this episode. Today, we're going to talk about the leaked draft opinion and what this means for all of us. We're also going to be having this conversation using an intersectional perspective on reproductive justice, specifically through the lens of Asian American Pacific Islander, or what we're going to term API, history and the experiences of API women and those who can become pregnant. I am so honored to welcome our two guests, Jenny Ma and Roseanne Maria Purim. I had the privilege of moderating a conversation with Jenny and Roseanne last December for the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association Convention, and I'm excited to share some of our conversation to ACS and Broken Law today. Jenny is an experienced litigator and senior attorney at the Center for Reproductive Rights. The Center is a global organization that uses the power of law to advance reproductive rights as a fundamental human right around the world. Across the U.S., but in particular in the South and Midwest, Jenny has had active litigation against multiple restrictions on reproductive rights in state and federal courts. She leads the center's affirmative work and is part of the case team for the Mississippi 15-week ban case that was heard before the Supreme Court in December and which a draft opinion was leaked just this week. Roseanne is the executive director of Jane's Due Process. Jane's Due Process helps young people in Texas navigate parental consent laws and confidentially access abortion and birth control. They also advocate for and center the voices of young people in the fight for reproductive rights. Roseanne is also an ACS Next Generation leader. Jenny and Roseanne, welcome to Broken Law and happy Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Thanks so much for having us, Peggy. Yes, so excited to be here with y'all. So let's start with the most obvious. None of us realized how extremely timely this program would be when we booked this in April. So I have to start with the check-in. Can you tell me what the last few days have been like for you? What's the mood at your offices, from your clients, and from your collaborators in response to the league draft of opinion, which would overturn a constitutional right to an abortion? Jenny, let's start with you. Well, I will say that this week was not at all what I had personally expected, and my Monday night definitely did not go the way that I thought. I sat down with a glass of wine that evening, and then the text started rolling in. And I'll say like that night was a little bit of a mental disconnect, right? Because your brain starts to acclimate as the story itself unfolds and you read the political article and then you understand that there's a leak. And then I read the draft opinion that night. And then the next morning when Chief Justice Roberts authenticated that it was indeed a draft because we had not known until um, that unprecedented release also came out. I'm 
pretty horrified and very disturbed and deeply upset. You know, as a lawyer, as a woman, and as a person living in the year 2022, that this court is poised to unleash so much harm and pain on so many people, that it is poised as a court of law to end a constitutional right that millions of people have relied on for nearly half a century. But I do want to emphasize at the onset that this is a leaked draft. It is not the final order of the court. So I really want to emphasize that because I don't want there to be confusion when the decision actually does come out. But more significantly, abortion is still legal. If you have an appointment today, your providers, our clients are hard at work day in and day out as they have been for years under constant threat, right? Abortion funds are still providing funding for care. People have been and still are today, tomorrow, are there to support you. So I just want to make that honestly clear. But this week has been hard. And honestly, the last few years and decades, it really puts into incredibly sharp focus the extremely precious place that reproductive rights are in and the stakes when the Supreme Court issues its final decision in the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case. I think Jenny just said it so powerfully that this circumstances in which we are in, I think advocates have known for, you know, decades that we were on this path, but I think my heart immediately went to people seeking abortion care. And specifically in Texas, I work with young people and, you know, they often, our clients can't even vote yet and their rights are being taken away by a court that has little to no regard, I would say, for the harms that they're causing. And so I think that was the first thing I thought when I saw, I was afraid for people who had appointments who might be afraid that they couldn't get care. And living in Texas with the six-week abortion ban for the last eight months, my heart went to all the parts of the country that are at risk of losing abortion with the decision and the fear that I know they almost fear because I remember it in September. I think the hardest thing was that I wasn't surprised. I think we've been being prepared to lose the right because it feels like we've already been so abandoned um, by the courts. We fought so hard to stop our abortion ban from taking effect, but I, I don't want this for anyone. I don't want this for our country. I don't think it represents what people in America actually believe or want. You know, abortion is a moral good. It lets people live full and free lives. It lets them plan and space their pregnancies. So I think this just isn't indicative of where our country really is. And it is an example of why we need to fight even harder to take back the institutions, including the courts and the legislatures that determine these laws. And I will have more substantive questions about the leaked draft of opinion and its repercussions for abortion access and other privacy-related rights later on in the episode. But I do want to start out by by setting our intersectional framework and lens for today's discussion. So to that end, I'd like to provide some level setting for our conversation today. First, the AAPI community is not a monolith. We speak over a hundred distinct languages or dialects. We come from different faiths and cultures and have vast economic disparities. The model minority myth obscures the diversity of our vast community. In the U.S., AAPI is actually of the greatest social economic disparities within a racial group. Second, while we will use the term AAPI women throughout, we do acknowledge that there are others within our community who also rely on abortion access, including non-binary, genderqueer, and trans folks. These individuals are also harmed and prejudiced when trying to access abortion services. I am a first-generation Taiwanese American. 
I did not learn anything about AAPI history growing up, much less the history of AAPI folks and reproductive rights. It really wasn't until law school that I took a course on Asian Americans in the law. Roseanne, did you learn about AAPI history growing up? And and if not, when did you learn about this history and specifically about the interaction between reproductive freedom, race, and gender identity? Very similar to you. I grew up in Ohio and definitely never heard um, about AAPI history in middle school or high school even. I think the first time I started to get some more information was in college. I moved to New York City and went to NYU. And I took some adjacent classes that would touch on it, like gender and the law. It wasn't really until law school that I got more of a formal understanding, especially through immigration law. And then also a little bit around some of the pieces of gender and the law. But I think there wasn't ever really an intersectional approach. It was always so segmented. It was always talking about race or gender, you know, never in conjunction with one another. If I'm honest, most of the times I made those connections was things from my own family. I knew that my maternal grandmother had died during childbirth. And it was one of the first things I began to understand about maternal mortality and why those rates are so disproportionately impacting communities of color, including Black women and immigrant communities. And so a lot of my education came from being an Asian American woman in the U.S. and also knowing my family's history in India. Yeah. And not to sound repetitive here, but I will just echo having grown up in New York City. I honestly, there was no API history taught in my early years in elementary school, junior high, high school, even though I went to a high school that had an incredibly large API community. And Again, like everyone, right, like my first class was in college and it was an elective. So it was othered in that way. And it wasn't infused with how the fabric of American history was where AAPI have been right from the start of this country's inception and certainly not interacting with reproductive freedom principles and gender identity until much later in college and in law school. And I do want to just emphasize Roseanne's point. You know, our history in many ways was really about our lived experiences and our family lives. I talked about reproductive freedom with my mom. She told me that she had an abortion and that is what made our family sustainable. And then I think about my grandma who had eight children and four miscarriages, you know, that she's aware of or that she's willing to share and just what her life must have been like to be like her whole adult life constantly pregnant and to not have the kind of options that are available to folks today. And so I think a lot of that was just more growing up, listening to family stories rather than in a textbook. Our audience members can't see it, but we are all nodding our heads because we relate so much to that. So to continue our conversation, Jenny, can you discuss the history of AAPI women in America so that our audience members can learn a little more about it? Sure. At the onset, you know, I'll say I'm not an expert, but the experiences of AAPI women have gone unacknowledged and unaddressed by mainstream culture throughout our history. You know, our intersecting identities, the various backgrounds that we come from, the different countries, but also within a country, the generational differences, and then the impact of sexism, racism, and hypersexualization has slowly become more visible in my lifetime, you know, especially as more and more AAPI folks have refused to be silent. And we do have a long history of AAPI oppression and reproductive oppressions throughout history and all up until today. 
There are a lot of stark immigration patterns, and that has such a that has played such a big role in the stereotyping and the history of AAPIs in America. So, can you talk a little bit about those immigration patterns? Yeah, you know, I think for people of color, and no different for AAPI folks, federal immigration policy in the U.S. has been one of exclusion, not of inclusion, and the U.S. history and to this day, it is used. Immigration policy is used to flex pure power of who can live as a fulsome person. And part of that is living a full family life and a full reproductive life. So as we think about AAPI women through history and this country's immigration laws, they were really designed to control our reproductive capabilities and to exert power over the entire population. So you see this early on, even the Naturalization Act of 1790, going back way back when, this was the first set of uniform rules for granting citizenship. And lo and behold, right, no surprise, the law limited naturalization to only, quote, free white persons of good character. And of course, that meant, you know, you had to, it was the paramount of explicit exclusion of indigenous people, both free and enslaved black folks and later AAPI people. And then you see other immigration patterns come through, right? When Asian men started to immigrate for the purposes of cheap labor around the early 1800s, Chinese immigrants started to work in sugar plantations in Hawaii. Immigrants were also working throughout the gold rush and on the railroads and working as cheap laborers at farms and factories. And during the time, very few AAPI women could come to the United States. You can imagine that that causes a gross gender imbalance amongst the population. And when some Asian women were able to come to this country, and I think that's when you start seeing these kind of hypersexualized tropes develop, they were seen as either very passive and feminine and domesticated, or kind of seen on the opposite side of the spectrum as aggressive, hypersexual, predatory, conniving, and so on. And, and that just kind of continued on. Later, you see the Page Act in 1875, which was designed to restrict, quote unquote, obnoxious Asian individuals. And really, that meant to deny entry to what this country thought were prostitutes and unskilled laborers. And again, in effect, it prevented Asian women from entering this country, including the wives of people who are already living in the U.S. Then, you know, by the statute of its own name, the Chinese Exclusion Act, it was the first significant immigration law that explicitly excluded a population of folks. The Chinese population at the time represented only 0.002% of the nation's population, but white Americans started attributing declining wages and economic ills. I mean, the story should sound familiar, right, to the immigration of Chinese laborers and barred any court from allowing Chinese immigrants to naturalize. And then, you know, more in recent times, you see the courts as no bastion of justice when it comes to AAPI civil liberties. You know, you take Ting versus U.S., which upheld the illegality of Chinese immigration, Plessy versus Ferguson, where you see Justice Harlan's dissent bombasting African-Americans and Asian-Americans as racist so different from our own. And then you have cases like Korematsu, where the court upheld Japanese internment and for the sake of national security. And, you know, post 9-11, where Muslim Americans and people of Middle Eastern descent were detained and in some cases tortured. 
So this is really just a, both in our immigration patterns, but also seeing what has been upheld throughout our history means in which our entire population has been controlled. Because of these immigration patterns and the exotification of Asian American women, like Jenny said, there have been really dehumanizing sexual stereotypes about API women. Roseanne, I know growing up, I've seen these stereotypes reflected and reinforced in mass media. I don't know if our audience have been quite as attuned to it. And so I'd love for you to tell me about these stereotypes in modern times, as well as your experiences with these stereotypes. So once again, I will also echo, I am not an expert, though I will try to share some information and also my lived experiences. So to begin with, I would start with, you know, even in cinema, the earliest examples of Asian American women represented in film were racist. So if you look at Anna Mae Wong, the first Chinese American actress to get prominence in cinema, she was typecast into roles that sexualized Asian American women, such as the Mongolian slave girl in The Thief of Baghdad in 1924. And I think you know, if you look at where we're at now, you know, in 2020, we're not seeing improvements in our own um, community's representation in film. Even today, um, a 2021 study revealed that the top 10 grossing films each year from 2010 to 2019 of those films, only 4.5% of the main characters cast were API. And then more than a third of these characters fell into stereotypes like the model minority, the martial artist, or the exotic woman. You know, 17% of female AAPI characters are verbally objectified and 13% are dressed in hypersexualized clothing more than white or non-Asian counterparts in film. It's so hard to think about that in the modern context. I definitely, as a child growing up, I grew up in a majority white community in Ohio and the examples I had or saw in film as a child, you know, were sometimes cartoons, but once again, it was always hypersexualized, even in like children's materials or Disney cartoons. And I honestly couldn't recall, I was trying to think of if I had like a crush on an Asian American character in like a TV show or a film when I was growing up. And other than the prince in Cinderella <laughs> with Brandy in Houston, um, that's all I came up with. So I think what gives me hope sometimes is that you do see changes, and especially I would say even in the past two to three years, but I think that is actually in response to, unfortunately, the violence and anti-Asian hate that we've seen. And so, of course, we have to discuss the Atlanta shootings that happened on March 16th in 2021, where we saw the murder of eight people, including six Asian American and immigrant women. I think those murders, I remember talking to you all because we had just been emailing. And then the next day when the news broke, I think the thing that was hardest was the silence. I didn't hear anything at work, even though I work in repro and I thought in a social justice space that would be responsive to such violent gender and racialized hate, but it wasn't acknowledged as that first. And in fact, some of the media coverage was so racist and so sexist, um, making assumptions about the individuals who died, um, especially because they worked at massage parlors or had been physically at one when they were killed. I think that's been hard. And as a young woman now in America, sometimes I think that even, I just trying to remember the first time I was called exotic. And I think I was like in the sixth grade and some boy at school said it. And I was like, dude, we're both from Ohio. <laughs> so it's non-exotic as it comes. <laughs> so um, it feels like it's very embodied still in our culture to fetishize and exoticize Asian American women in particular. I'll add in, I remember someone coming up to me. I was just having a like a casual conversation and someone said, and it had nothing to do with race. 
And someone said, man, I wish I had an Asian wife. Like, it looks like you're cooking and cleaning and you're taking care of your man. Like, oh, it would be great to have an Asian wife. And I was just shell-shocked because it came out of nowhere. Uh And that was in, I think, 2013, which wasn't that long ago. No. Oh, my God. Well, (laughs) so going on... I'm sure we have so many other stories. We could have an entire hour, probably the entire <laughs> podcast, spinoff podcast on this. Well, Asian Americans, I don't know if folks know, but Asian Americans are the fastest growing racial group in this country, which of course includes a growing population of AAPI folks who can become pregnant. Like other communities of color, AAPI women face barriers to accessing race resources, including economic and geographical barriers. In addition, AAPI women face some unique barriers when asserting their reproductive rights and accessing reproductive health care. So Jenny, can you talk a little bit about some of those unique barriers? Yeah, I think like all women of color, AAPI women in the U.S. are negatively impacted by the policies and practices that aim to control our bodies, our sexuality and reproduction. There's been so much erasure of AAPI women due to some of the stereotypes that we've been talking about. And unfortunately, that includes how we fit into reproductive rights, healthcare, and justice. But the facts are that AAPI women face numerous barriers to healthcare, including lack of health insurance, the weak enforcement of regulations that mandate interpretation and translation services, healthcare professionals who are untrained to serve diverse communities. There's limited English proficiency issues, immigration status. About a tenth of Asian Americans um, in this country are undocumented, and more than a quarter of undocumented Asian immigrants in this country live below the poverty line. So money is always a problem to healthcare for everyone, but also in the AAPI community. There's also a cultural stigma with reproductive health care and abortion and sexual health in some of our communities. And that includes just the healthcare system in general. There's some healthy distrust in API communities of the healthcare system. And partly that's a two-way street where the healthcare system has not treated our communities with our fulsome selves either. And so there are a multitude of problems. Again, it's not a monolith, but I think all of these have combined in some combination to make it difficult and erect barriers to our community to accessing reproductive health care and healthcare in general. And despite the importance of reproductive health care to our physical, economic, and emotional well-being, it really feels like the experiences of AAPI women have been erased from reproductive rights spaces. And the issue of reproductive justice has also been erased within AAPI spaces. So we don't fit anywhere. As AAPI women working in the repro justice space, can you make sense of this erasure? Like, what's happening here? Roseanne? Oh, Peggy, (laughs) what a question. Um, (laughs) I will start by saying, you know, I think one of the things that was most helpful to me was starting to understand the frameworks, because I used to think of reproductive rights as being inclusive of so much more than it actually is. So one of the first frames I think about is the difference between reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice. So I actually started out working in reproductive health, which is really on like the clinical care provision of birth control, abortion, you know, maternal health. So that is really where you're seeing people get trained to provide care, but it is very clinician focused and it's very focused on the healthcare system. 
then you expand and look at reproductive rights, which is really the legal ability to, you know, live your life and your reproductive health. That is where you see foundational legal cases. And that's where we see Roe, but also things like, you know, Griswold v. Connecticut, which ensured the right to birth control. And if you look at reproductive For married persons only, Roseanne, remember. (laughs) It took a while before they even recognized birth control for other folks. That's it though, right? It leaves out so much. And so that's where we end up with reproductive justice, which is really much more inclusive of looking at our full lived reproductive lives, choosing to have children if, when, and how we want to have them, making sure that we have the freedom to parent and ensure our children can be safe. So it incorporates things like racial justice. If we look at like black communities that live under police violence and brutality, immigrant justice, you know, being allowed to live and cross borders and raise your children where you want them to have happy and healthy lives. So for me, the shift in those frames and understanding them sort of, that's how I understood immediately where we were left out. And I think there's so much leadership in reproductive justice to be more inclusive, especially of AAPI communities. So that gives me some hope. But historically, the reproductive movement in America has centered, you know, straight, cis, wealthy white women And you can see that in who was leading the movement, even in like the 1960s and 70s. If you look at the leadership of a lot of the national organizations for a long time, it was not centering communities of color, especially not AAPI individuals. And so I think we're kind of the face and changes that are happening. I mean, this conversation (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't have happened. Um, So I think that's where I see a lot of it in repro. It's obviously harder to make big statements in our AAPI community more broadly. But I do think the same kind of stigma surrounding sex and abortion that exists in all communities exists in AAPI, especially if it's intersecting with a community of faith. So I was raised Roman Catholic and I'm Indian and there just was no sex ed. I had abstinence only. (laughs) I I signed a a virginity pledge card. Wow. Um, so I think faith plus so many Asian American communities can be one of the reasons we don't talk about sex or abortion or, you know, even like planning and spacing pregnancies. Like how did everyone magically just have small families when they moved um, to America? Hmm. So I think that is probably one of the biggest pieces. And I know in the direct service work I do, I constantly think about why we're not serving as many Asian American young people as I know live in Texas. And I think for us, the work is, you know, making sure there's real language access, making sure we're actually reaching out to immigrant communities in ways that are accessible to them. And that means, you know, if you're going to have a know your rights training, it can't just be in English and it can't just be, you know, in a community center in a part of town that no one from the AAPX community goes to. So those are the pieces I think a lot about when I think, why aren't we in the right spaces and what can we do to get there? And I'll just add the perpetuation of the model minority myth has pitted some API against other people of color and have erased so many Asian Americans who don't fit into that narrative. I think that myth also has erased generational traumas and ongoing struggles of the vastly diverse Asian communities that exist, including how the struggle to get access to abortion care and reproductive health care has been. Individually, like many people of color and many women, there weren't that many models to see myself in this work. You know, in the courtroom as a litigator, I still kind of get stares of disbelief that I, as this East Asian American presenting person, as a woman, is lead counsel at a trial, especially when oftentimes the adjudicators sitting behind the bench are like older white men of a certain generation. And I hear that 
throughout <laughs> many of my my lawyer colleagues who don't fit a certain mold. But I will say in all of these communities that Roseanne mentioned, reproductive rights, reproductive health, reproductive justice, we've been here and that's important. I think we are growing in numbers and visibility. I mean, the fact of this podcast, like Roseanne said, but also the fact that she's an executive director, it's all incredibly awesome. And so there are activists, lawyers, strategists, providers, healthcare workers who are doing all aspects of this work. So I hope that those numbers grow, our visibility grows. And I do want to shout out the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, who was founded in 1996. um, And they're an RJ organization who really amplify API stories and experiences. And their mission is to build power amongst API women and girls. And they're an amazing organization. I haven't been doing this work, so I really want to just shout them out. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. This June, ACS members will be gathering for our annual national convention in Washington, D.C. After two years of virtual conventions, we are thrilled to be reconvening in person on June 16th through the 18th. This is an opportunity for lawyers, students, scholars, advocates, judges, and ACS allies to come together to celebrate and advance the progressive legal movement. Learn more about our national convention and RSVP today by going to acslaw.org backslash convention. Again, that's acslaw.org backslash convention. We hope to see you there. And now back to the conversation. So let's switch over now to the legal attacks against reproductive rights more broadly. So for nearly five decades, women and other people who can become pregnant have had their constitutional rights to abortion recognized and protected by the Supreme Court. Like we started off the show with, we were all shocked, angered, saddened, (laughs) devastated on Monday, May 2nd, when the Politico published a draft majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito that would strike down Roe v. Wade. Jenny, for our audience members who may not have read the draft opinion but may have seen the articles, can you provide a summary of the draft opinion and what it says? Yeah, I do. Again, and with the hope that I'm not being repetitive, I really want to emphasize this is the draft opinion. And this is something that we have been saying for a year is a possibility, but it is not the final opinion of the court. So I will summarize this draft. Unfortunately, this draft opinion appears to adopt most of Mississippi's arguments. It's pretty much a wholesale adoption of their worst and most harmful arguments for people. They're about as extreme as they can possibly be. Mississippi asked the court to uphold the 15-week ban in that state, overrule Roe versus Wade, and find that the Constitution provides no protection whatsoever to the right to abortion. And this draft says yes. States can prohibit abortion at any stage of pregnancy. It is a complete overturning of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and it disregards 50 years of precedent. You know, I think most notably, and there are so many articles, so I encourage people to read those, but I want to emphasize one point that really stuck out at me. The draft opinion really ignores completely women and pregnant people. It denies people their full humanity and the dignity of lived experiences as folks. It denies the one in four women and pregnant people who have access this care in their lifetimes. It gives no recognition to the liberty and privacy interests of people in this country at all. 
So what does this mean for other liberty rights like contraception, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage? It is really important for listeners and the public to understand this. The final opinion in this case may not be limited to abortion. And I'll say this, that the reasoning of this leaked draft would support overturning other fundamental rights, including civil and human rights, and implicate a whole line of rights that have been protected by the 14th Amendment. This includes LGBTQ equality, the right to contraception, the right to bodily autonomy, the right of how do you want to raise your children. Now, the decision in this draft claims that it's not. It gives a nod to saying, oh, but abortion is different. But the reasoning outlined is basically a blueprint that would require that these decisions be impacted as well. And I want to say, getting a little bit in the legal weeds, right? I think this is a core problem of originalism. It's a constitutional interpretation that ignores like how equality might be impacted across these issues. So you don't need to be a lawyer to know that we should not treat the state of the law at the time of 1868 or 1787 as a guide for what is relevant today in 2020. That is really problematic if you are a woman, if you are Black, if you are a person of color, if you are gay, because our status as full citizens did not exist at that time, right? So I think I do want to say that this was really nicely encompassed by a Harvard historian, Jill Lepore, in this week's New Yorker. And I'll quote her just because I think it really just is nice. Quote, women are indeed missing from the Constitution. That's a problem to remedy, not a precedent to honor. And as of today, I know, Jenny, you said this at the top and I'll reiterate it again. Roe is still the law of the land, and until a final decision is handed down by the Supreme Court, those seeking abortion care should not be deterred from accessing the health care that they need. But even that statement has some caveats, for example, if you're living in a state like Texas, like Roseanne and I, where abortion has practically been banned since last fall, impacting millions of Americans. Roseanne, you run an organization in Texas that provides legal support for young people trying to obtain a judicial bypass to access abortion care without parental involvement. As an operator in Texas, can you talk to me about how your organization and your patients are being impacted by the state's SB8 abortion ban? Like, what is it like in Texas right now, even before this leaked draft opinion? I just have to say, I love hearing Jenny talk because it gives me hope. I mean, you know, like <laughs> before I dive into the darkness. Um, <laughs> Was that hopeful, Rose? <laughs> because like we're talking about how much it's at risk, right? Like they've been able to silo and section off abortion for so long, but we are all connected. Like, you know, we, Audrey Lord, we do not live single issue lives. This is a multi-issue struggle. Like we need to show up for one another. Um, and the and public I, is with us, right? Yes. Time and not- time again. This is not a fringe issue. This is an every person issue. So I just want to emphasize that. So that's that's what I think about when I think about what it's been like in Texas. You know, I think, unfortunately, Texas also gets siloed sometimes. Like, oh, that's just Texas being Texas. But we're one of the largest states in the country. We're diverse. You know, people here do support abortion access. So when SB8 passed on September 1st, and suddenly, you know, if I can just ground us in the numbers... Upwards of 55 to 56,000 abortions happen in Texas every year. And when SB took effect, abortion rates dropped by 50% in our state. 
So obviously there's some hope that some people got out and went to other states. But if you look at breaking it down by numbers, I work with young people and the abortion rate for people aged 16 to 17 dropped by 70%. And for anyone under 16, it dropped by 90%. So we know that youth weren't getting out. We also know that like, if you are a person of color, if you are poor, if you are immigrant, travel is extremely limited and the ability to, you know, take time off of work, find childcare, miss school, like those things just might not be happening. And so, you know, thousands of people are staying pregnant against their will. And there are going to be thousands of families that are going to have to struggle with an unintended pregnancy without social support, because being pregnant and parenting in Texas is really dangerous. You know, we don't have the protections and healthcare and housing and things that parents need because our state refuses to expand Medicaid, because our state refuses to cover the things that infant and parents need um, to be healthy. And that's why we have one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the country, specifically for Black women in Texas who only make up 11% of the births, but make up 31% of the maternal mortality rate in our state. So the racism of an abortion ban then leads to worse outcomes for communities of color. And when I think about that, what it's been like in Texas, you know, we saw this drop in our abortion rate. And then at Jean's due process, we saw this huge request for um, pregnancy tests and emergency contraceptives. So people are doing everything they can not to get pregnant, but it shouldn't be on them. It should be on the state to provide health care and make things more accessible. And Texas is one of the most diverse states in America. It is majority minority. It also has the third highest AAPI population in America behind California and New York. Roseanne, I know you talked a little bit about how SBA has impacted your community and communities of color and young folks, but can you chat a little more about how maybe how that intersects with like immigration status as well? Definitely. So, I mean, I love that about Texas. I love that it's so diverse. Um, I moved here from New York City, so it was a bit of a culture shift, but I actually think... Like maybe I left my heart in Texas because places that have large immigrant populations, you know, our food is better. Like we just, (laughs) we have so much here. Unfortunately, immigration status can deeply impact someone's ability to travel for healthcare. So if you think about it in Texas, you know, obviously we share a border with Mexico and you're allowed to have border checkpoints as far as a hundred miles from the actual border with Mexico. So people living in the Rio Grande Valley and people who live in South Texas, if they're undocumented, they often can't travel up to an abortion clinic um, in Houston or in San Antonio because they'll cross a checkpoint. They also can't get on a plane. It's just incredibly challenging to get anywhere. And we work with a lot of immigrant youth, um, especially in Houston and a lot of AAPI youth who are fighting so hard to make sure their communities know about the abortion ban and know that they can contact us for help, can contact other abortion funds. We're one of like almost a dozen abortion funds in the state that have been trying to make sure people have money to pay for their abortions if they stay in the state. But if they travel outside, paying for travel, paying for a hotel room, paying for, you know, their abortion care once they get wherever they're going. But immigration status can really limit whether or not someone can get out of the state. And then language access has also been a huge piece. So a lot of immigrant communities, you know, thankfully there is some of um, more awareness around the need for English and Spanish interpretation in a lot of social services in Texas, but for Asian American communities, you know, very rarely do I see that 
things translated into like Tagalog or Hindi or like any of the things that our communities speak. So I've definitely made a commitment at my organization. We have a translation service that does like 200 plus languages. So we want to make sure you can find what you need. But AAPI communities, unfortunately, I think get left behind a lot when it comes to language access. There's also this criminalization of pregnant people in Texas and around the country. And that's one place in the history where you see that intersection of API history and reproductive justice history. So can you talk a little bit about the criminalization of pregnant people and those intersecting histories? Yeah, this is probably the hardest stuff to talk about because this is also what I'm the most afraid of as we move um, deeper into abortion bans. So I'll start with the case of Baby Shui, which when 2011, a Chinese immigrant woman was charged with feticide and murder for attempting suicide while pregnant. I think this is, it begins to get to the heart of when a person is pregnant, suddenly they, they lose so much freedom and autonomy in the eye of the law. And so you know, thankfully, although she was convicted in 2011, that was overturned in 2013 because of like relentless legal advocacy by her team. And I also want to thank, you know, national advocates for pregnant women who have really focused on ending criminalization of pregnant people. And, you know, there was the legal fight and there was also a public pressure campaign. I think over like 100,000 letters were sent trying to get people to understand that she should not be criminalized. And so she should be met with compassion and healthcare and all the things that people deserve when they're in that situation. Another example, another AAPI who was criminalized for pregnancy outcomes is Purvi Patel. In 2015, an Indian American woman was convicted and sentenced to 20 years in prison the charges were feticide and child neglect. But once again, this is someone who is pregnant, who's being treated not for the needs that they have, but criminalized by a system. Thankfully, once again, her conviction was overturned in 2016. But at that point, she'd been incarcerated for well over a year. You know, and these two cases are examples within our AAPI community, but, you know, criminalization can also include things like if a pregnant person has substance abuse and it gets criminalized further for substance use because additionally they're also pregnant. And then a lot of the outcomes for mental health needs are being met with prosecution instead of with healthcare. And so unfortunately in Texas, we also just saw a criminalization case about a you know, handful of weeks ago in Star County, which is in the Rio Grande Valley and South Texas, Lizel Herrera was charged with murder after seeking health care at a hospital system. They informed the police that she had shown up and then shared that she had been pregnant, but had maybe used some sort of medication and was no longer pregnant. It was terrifying, I think is the only way I can frame it. Cause I remember talking to advocates the, the day we found out cause she'd been arrested and then, you know, access to legal services, like anyone even knowing it was happening was so hard. Thankfully, a lot of the groups in South Texas mobilized really quickly. South Texans for Reproductive Justice, the Frontera Fund, and especially national groups who have specialized in this, like if when, how, and their legal defense fund all came together and got her out of jail and got the charges dropped over the weekend, but it never should have happened in the first place. There's literally no law that they could have used to arrest her. Like they charged her with murder, but there's no basis for that. And so to me, it was an example of prosecutors who are going to feel emboldened living in places with abortion bans or once they see a final decision from the Supreme Court. And so we need to be super protective of criminalization of pregnant people. And before we move away from Texas, I don't know if folks know, but last year, in addition to SB8, Texas also passed a trigger law. Can you tell our audience about Texas's trigger law? Yes. Ooh, I'm the downer section. So... (laughs) 
the same leg session, uh, legislative session, you know, we meet every two years in Texas. Thank goodness they don't meet more often. Here, here. <laughs> <laughs> Our governor prioritized a trigger bill, which is a bill that um, is designed to make abortion illegal in a state. Ours specifically says it uh, has a couple of options, including a constitutional amendment that would make abortion illegal. But the one they're aiming at is if the U.S. Supreme Court undermines or overturns Roe v. Wade, um, abortion will become illegal and criminal in Texas within 30 days. So sitting with that has been really hard. And I think we also didn't remove prior criminalization statutes and bans on abortion from our books. So those are sitting there as well. So we have many laws that could be used to show that abortion is fully illegal if Roe v. Wade gets overturned. There will be a section towards the end where we give folks things to do and hopefully has a more hopeful turn. But we are going to continue down this road for a little bit longer. Jenny, Texas is not the only state with a trigger law. So if the draft opinion is ultimately issued and the right to an abortion is not constitutionally protected, what would access to abortion look like across the country outside of just Texas? The effect of the opinion, the final opinion, looking like the draft opinion would be cruel and absolutely devastating and unleash on millions of women and pregnant people the gravest of harms. So we know that a dozen states or so, including Texas and Mississippi and others, have so-called trigger laws in place that are ready to spring into effect if Roe were overturned in whole or in part. So these were passed, you know, subsequently since the Roe decision in 1973 and would explicitly outlaw abortion within their borders if the Supreme Court allowed it. In the aftermath of a Roe reversal, we'd see about even more states, about half the states, the numbers have ranged from 24 to 26 states that would be poised to ban abortion or limit abortion heavily. So what we'll see is a seismic shift in access. Even as Roe stands, access is so difficult, but we'd really see two Americas where women and pregnant people in some states are relegated to second-class citizenship. The effect of it would be the United States without Roe would look very different for different people. And what I mean by that is if you have means, if you are able to make it out of state, If you live in a particular zip code, you may have access. But of course, if you don't have certain of those, right, you will have no access whatsoever. And the impact, of course, will be most devastating on women and pregnant people who have difficulty making ends meet, Black women, people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ folks, people with disabilities, young people, and people who are so disproportionately impacted in healthcare generally anyway. the draft opinion is anything like the final opinion, then generations will be so far worse off than they are today. And that is just devastating. And I know so many of these states are also home to a large and growing API community. So if you could touch on that as well, the impact on our community. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about half the United States and API folks in different numbers live in all of those states. So API people are affected, period. But in particular, there are states that have particularly large and growing API communities. You know, you mentioned Texas as a very diverse and large state, but API populations in Georgia 
North Carolina are all growing. In Georgia, they've grown to 138%. In Texas, 128%. And in North Carolina, 154% as of 2000. So really the rolling back of reproductive rights by banning access to abortion will further jeopardize the well-being of all people, but also the well-being and financial stability of millions of API women and families. There are states, though, like California, who are preparing to become a safe haven for those living in states without abortion, including possibly creating civil protections for California abortion providers. Can you talk about what states have been doing to strengthen access to abortion? Yeah, absolutely. And states have been um, enacting proactive measures for years, but I think we've seen an uptick of interest from states like California in figuring out how to protect access to abortion in light of not only the Supreme Court taking the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health case from the get-go, but especially an uptick even in, in light of recent events of this week. So some protective policies, you know, and this is not the full list that states have been contemplating are how can we remove hurdles to care, right? So removing barriers like waiting periods, judicial notification and parental notifications for minors, expanding the types of clinicians who can lawfully provide care, funding abortion and reproductive health care, including proposing how we can help patients pay for travel and expenses, removing barriers to telehealth, and expanding Medicaid coverage to include abortion care within their states. All of these measures, again, you know, I want states to be creative and think harder on ways to remove barriers. But of course, this is, you know, a good start. And I hope that more and more states start to join California and other states to develop these policies. And no matter the outcome of the Dobbs decision, I know there are also trends from the anti-abortion movement in states around the country. I know I've seen some states trying to restrict abortion, not only in their own state, but only but also for those traveling out of state to access abortions. Can you talk about that as well? Sure. The anti-abortion movement have been at this for decades, and it is a mistake to think that the outcome of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is the end. They will be still at it, so they will not stop no matter what the outcome is. States have, as you mentioned, already tried to restrict people from crossing state borders. They have been public. I think Louisiana today introduced a fetal personhood bill. Literally, it would end up charging patients with murder at the moment of fertilization. And I really want to emphasize, because there's been conversations on the federal level about, you know, I think there's been this like, oh, are you in a safe state? Are you in an anti-abortion state? Right. And that dichotomy might um, really be at issue because there are anti-abortion legislators on the federal level mobilizing right now for a potential nationwide ban on abortion. And that possibility is absolutely chilling and absolutely terrifying to me. So I really want people to really understand this as an issue all across this country, because we do not know what the playbook is, but we've seen indications of what the anti-abortion movement wants and, you know, they will not stop. Switching over to federal legislation, there are three pieces of legislation before Congress related to abortion access and healthcare access more broadly. Roseanne, can you talk about some of these bills and, and its potential impact? Certainly. So, you know, I want to say that like advocates on the federal level have been pushing so hard for those 
a lot of these bills and it's only now that they've gotten any movement. So I think this really is the time for federal action and for Congress to show up and stand up for us. We're fighting like hell in the States. So like they need to get moving. Um, So I'll start with the Women's Health Protection Act. So this is a bill um, that has been introduced several times, but it would codify the um, federal right to abortion and it would lift and remove abortion restrictions, dozens of them all over the country. It's especially powerful, obviously, right now because of the risk to Roe v. Wade. But in Texas, you know, we were eyeing this bill to get rid of Senate Bill 8. So for the first time, it actually passed through the House of Representatives. And then it did get a vote in the Senate, but it didn't pass out of the Senate. That does not mean they cannot try again. So, you know, I think to know that it got through the House is tremendous. That's the first time that's ever happened. And it's really exciting to see. The other two pieces I'll talk about are the Heal for Immigrant Families Act. So Heal was uh, actually brought forward by a huge coalition, including led by a national Asian Pacific um, Islander Women's Foundation. So it's like, you know, this is us. Um, and it's really trying to expand healthcare access for uh, immigrant families in the United States who are currently unfortunately barred from many social services. There's things like a five-year bar on access to public health benefits. So like even after you've gone through the rigmarole of getting, you know, legal status here, you're still banned from public benefits. So this is really trying to codify that immigrant families deserve access to health care. And last but definitely not least is the Equal Access to Abortion Coverage and Health Insurance Act, also just called the EACH Act, if that's a mouthful. And this is really about insurance coverage for abortion care. And so like, as Jenny said, you know, one of the ways we can ensure abortion is more accessible is having it covered by insurance. And the reason it's currently not is the Hyde Amendment, which um, bans public money from covering abortion care. Texas has its own special state version of that. So we need federal action to really get rid of these abortion insurance bans. And so each would really achieve that goal. The Senate's filibuster's effective requirement of 60 votes to pass legislation has been a barrier to the enactment of laws protecting civil rights and threatens to stop progress on the major challenges facing our nation, including voting rights and reproductive rights. Can you talk a little bit about this filibuster and its impact on these bills? I can try. So I guess to a certain degree, there's a part of me that wonders, like, if not then, now, like when, <laughs> like, exactly. when are we yes, going to do this? Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, all people have abortions, including women, but gender nonconforming people and trans people. And we make up the majority of the population of the country. So if our human rights are being affected so deeply, if we're losing our freedom so significantly, you know, this is the time for Congress to step forward. And I want to specifically name that, you know, federal action also has to come from leadership in the White House. And when SB8 happened, we heard from White House officials they were going to do everything they could. And I just want to name they have not. So seeing leadership from the federal government is really important right now. And the whole country's calling for it. You know, I was in the streets on Monday with like Me too. <laughs> thousands of people. And I know yeah. more demonstrations are planned this weekend. So I think just listen to us because this is what people want to see. I'll add in as well. And we can put in the show notes. ACS does have some materials on filibuster reform as well. So I encourage folks, if they don't know about this topic or how it impacts civil rights, please do learn more about it. So it is so powerful and soul replenishing to talk to you both. It's so powerful hearing you speak about your work, your experience on the ground and and what the future may hold. You know, one thing that I know all three of us have talked about before is the power of storytelling and having these really honest and candid conversations about abortion access, reproductive justice, 
with your personal networks. Jenny, can you provide some tips on how all of us can talk to our family members and friends and neighbors about reproductive justice and reproductive rights? Yeah, I don't know if it'll work for everyone because I know people have various relationships, but whoever your trusted people are, right? I think step one is just talking about it. I think there is so much stigma involved in abortion. We had the president not being able to say the word. I think just try to be as honest as possible with your people. And even if it's a small cadre, even if it's one person, right? Just having the kind of conversation that we have had today over the last hour is just so significant. Asking like, oh, you know, I've heard so many stories of people who are just like, oh, who's had an abortion? And like, one in four people have, right? So you know someone and, you know, I think it would be surprising to you. Abortion touches so many people's lives in every single way. And it is literally interwoven into the fabric of how you got here, whatever, you know, whoever you are. And it's just so important to talk about because it really is something that is about everything. And just, I think, you know, we can talk about it as like a procedure. You can talk about it, how it's changed people's lives, how it's allowed people to become a better mother, how it's allowed someone to live a life that they want, to achieve a career that they want, to get to the next step. And it's just really important for us to take that first step and say the word and just start a conversation. And if you get shot down, then try someone else who's trusted, right? Or like have a party about it. Just say like, oh, come over and drink wine. And we're going to talk about reproductive health care. And what a great kind of segue from this draft opinion being leaked to like really talk about what reproductive rights and abortion has meant for you. And I know, Roseanne, you've already touched on it today, how culture and religion have played into some of those conversations that you've had. So if you could share tips as well, that'd be great. I like this part of the conversation. This is the hopeful one. So, you know, I got this advice from a mentor um, at the beginning of when I started working at Repro because I, you know, had been raised Catholic and I had some discomfort around totally understanding abortion care. It's something that, you know, now I get that anyone's decision to have an abortion is the right and good decision to have an abortion. No one should be forced to continue a pregnancy against their will. So for me, getting over the stigma was saying the word abortion. So I tried to say it every day for a week. Then I said it every day for a month. And then I said it every day for a year. Um, It's a fun game. (laughs) Um, And especially right now, it's super easy. (laughs) I would say start there. And I super echo Jenny, talk to the people in your life who you care about and who care about you. Let them know where you stand on this special plug. If you have young people in your life, because they're really scared and they look to adults, um, not just their parents, but also, you know, their aunts and uncles. And if you have niblets, like just be a safe person that they can talk to, not just about abortion, but also about sex. I know so many of us learn from Google things. And unfortunately, I hear all the time that teens are not getting sex ed. And then they're like Googling basic information online when they should be able to get it from a trusted adult. So I think talk about these pieces of our lives because so many of us can't get pregnant. We spend like what, like five years of our reproductive lives trying to get pregnant and then like the rest of it trying not to. So this is a super normal part of being a person and having sex, which is normal and healthy. It just has to be something we all talk about and culturally shift towards it being a safe thing to discuss. This may not be true for everyone in every relationship, but in those conversations where I've had had candid conversations with folks about reproductive justice, abortion access, abortions, 
generally it's tended to deepen my relationship with those folks. I've been able to have very honest and raw conversations that have helped strengthen and deepen those relationships. Again, it might not be true for every relationship and every person, but I've had really positive experiences. So hoping to continue having those positive experiences. And even if they are negative, I mean, I'm glad I said the word abortion that day. (laughs) You did your homework that day, Becky. (laughs) So now we're at the end of the episode and we like to end our episodes with a call to action for listeners who are interested in helping organizations like yours, Roseanne, or helping to champion reproductive rights. What would you recommend that listeners do? So one thing I would say is definitely give to your local abortion fund. The abortion funds pay for all those things I discussed, the procedure, here, here, travel. Here, 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 abortion funds. <laughs> And you can find them by going to the National Network of Abortion Funds website. They'll list the funds that are local to you. You can also give to funds in other states. I just want to shout out the gratitude to everyone who's given to the funds in Texas these past eight months. I also want to lift up a lot of the abortion clinics. You can give directly to them through Abortion Care Network, um, especially independent clinics. A lot of clinics are just like standalone, just doing this work day in, day out. And so um, supporting independent clinics because they're at risk of closing, especially if these bans take effect. And the clinics in states where abortion is protected are going to have to deal with a huge influx of people. So anything you can do to support abortion funds and clinics. I cannot echo that enough. So I will say, please give to abortion funds and independent clinics all across this country, but especially those people who are doing the work in the 26 states, 24 states that are possibly affected by a negative decision by the Supreme Court. So you can find those states in our What If the Center for Reproductive Rights, What If Roe Fell Map. You can Google it, right? And just please, if you have financial means, do give to those organizations. I want to just say a few more things about like, just, you know, what we talked about before, talk to people about what is happening, talk about abortion, talk about the value that it has brought to your life and others that you love, right? Again, this number is staggering one in four, right? Like, so it has made your family, it has touched upon your family, even if you don't know it. And so talking about it's really important. Talk about it in your dinner table, your wine settings, your book clubs and so on, right? I do want to say, because I represent abortion providers and other organizations who have been so tired over these last few years, and especially this week has been just emotionally draining because they are dealing with confused patients. They are dealing with people who do not know the status, who do not know that this is a draft opinion, that abortion is legal, right? They could use a little boost. I've heard that like just sending a note showing up if you can to volunteer as a clinic escort or seeing how they're doing sending a bottle of wine, sending cookies, you know, all of that is so just really gratitude for these essential healthcare providers who work in the most difficult of settings. I have always said I have the pleasure of representing these most resilient of people and clients. Um, and it's just my greatest pleasure to, to represent these amazing folks. So I just really want to um, emphasize that they have been through a lot this past week and beyond. If you are a lawyer listening to this, We would really love your help. We can't do this alone. So we are going to need additional folks who um, provide pro bono support for cases, but also for compliance advice, but also for like representation. So please reach out and find out from your law firm if you work with the Center for Reproductive Rights or one of our other litigating orgs and many Law firms do, but you can also start that yourself and build a relationship. You can email me if you want to. And then really, I want to emphasize that 
we need to pay attention to what SCOTUS is doing, right? When the final decision does issue, and it is similar, like pay attention to what organizers are doing. I know that Roseanne mentioned protests that happened on Tuesday, but also things that are planned for this weekend. Do not let up the gas when the actual decision issues. I know there has been confusion again, and I was at a protest where people were saying that this was the decision. It is not when the decision comes and it is final. That is the time now and then to continue to take action, right? Your urgency, your outrage, that needs to be manifested. I want to also shout out, like, do not stop paying attention to the local. That is in some ways how we got here. Please pay attention and advocate with your state legislators at your state courthouses and pay attention to state ballot initiatives. There are about 20 initiatives right now. And abortion has almost always been on them, but this year is paramount. If you're living in Michigan or Colorado, Kansas, Montana, Kentucky, pay attention because these initiatives kind of go both ways and it is the will of the people. So please pay attention to that. I also think from our standpoint, right, state constitutions and courts matter more than ever. We have a, the Center for Reproductive Rights has a new report called State Constitutions and Abortion Rights, Building Protections for Reproductive Autonomy. There are high courts in states that have recognized protections beyond what the U.S. Constitution has given. And I think that is really important. And you'd be surprised at the list of the states. So really, wherever you are living, whether it is any of the states across this country, like pay attention to what your legislators, pay attention to what your constitutions um, are, because it is really pivotal to focus in on the national, but also the local and have an all hands on deck approach here. Because this is literally about who in the society gets to be an equal protect person under the law, no matter who they are. And that is just worth fighting for. And I'll also chime in to just add that we can't have this conversation without also discussing the change in the makeup of the court and the need for court reform. If the reporting from Politico is correct and that's the decision that we end up with when there's a final decision, then this result will have been achieved exclusively by the rights packing of the court with this very outcome in mind. We are facing a constitutional crisis in this country. Our courts have been packed with ideologues whose mission is less about upholding the Constitution and more about doing political bidding. You can see this with the right theft of two Supreme Court seats, which gives the right a supermajority on our highest court with an activist conservative agenda. To advance progressive policies, we're going to need to support and advocate for court reform. We do have other episodes on this on Broken Law. It's episode 21 and 34. So I would recommend that you all go there, learn more about court reform, and check out ACS's resources on court reform in our show notes. And of course, vote. Your voice matters. There is so much at stake this election cycle. A third of our country's U.S. Senate seats, governors and attorney generals, state court judges, county clerks, DAs, and more. We know democracy works best when everyone is engaged. So we do encourage you to check out ACS's Run, Vote, Work initiative, which does focus on raising awareness of and voter engagement in elected offices, including those positions that are so critical to protecting our rule of law and the running of our elections and the guardrails of our democracy. Go check out our show notes and take the pledge to become a poll worker. And with that, thank you so much, Roseanne and Jenny, for joining us for Broken Law today. 
I know that we all appreciate the work that you do to protect the rights to bodily autonomy and are so thankful that you're able to come on during this challenging time to reflect on the draft opinion and provide this intersectional perspective on reproductive justice. I think y'all know it is always such a joy to be around you and to be in community with you. And I already feel slightly better being <laughs> next to you both. Same. <laughs> this makes it, you know, this is community and this is how we're going to get through it. Yes. Thanks so much for having us, Peggy. And lovely to share space with you, Roseanne. Same, Jenny. Thanks so much for having us. This is wonderful. And thank you to our listeners for finding Broken Law. Please be sure to follow and subscribe to Broken Law so you don't miss an episode. And please recommend Broken Law to a friend so we can bring these important conversations to more listeners. You can find details and show notes about today's episode on our website at acslaw.org. And if you have ideas for future episodes, please let us know. You can email us at podcast at acslaw.org or find us on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not. Thank you.